One of the things that's actually easy to forget is why we believe in the church. Um, there's news stories. There's all sorts of reasons to, to forget that. And it's, it's even easy to believe or to forget who we are as a church. So what we've been doing the last, last week and this week is we're taking a, a short series uh, to look at this phrase in the Apostles' Creed that says, I believe in the church. And Pastor Mike spent um, time last week giving us context for how the creed works itself out, how the creed was created, the role that the creed has played inside of the church, and why it is that it can be difficult to believe in the church, but why it is necessary for us uh, to function as a church. And we learned that the church is not man's invention. It's not something that, was, that we came up with. It's God's idea. We learned that the church um, also is, is something that is, is not optional, but it's something that we should be, as those who are following Jesus should be a part of. The church is not a club that you join give some money to, get some free coffee, get to hear somebody talk and sing. No, it's the church is a, it's a body. It's a people who act together, who carry out God's work inside of the world, wherever it is that they are. So this morning, following up, there's a lot of different directions we could go to talk about the church. We could talk about how you organize the church. We could talk about what times or what days a week we should meet as a church. We could talk about how you should fund it and where your money should go as a church. We could talk about, you know, how, how you sing. Should you sing with an organ, right? Or should we have a guitar? Should we just do acapella with hymn books? Or should we have a piano, right? How, how should we do that? I'm not going to tackle that one so I can keep my job. But there's all sorts of uh, ways that you could, you could talk about what the role of the church is, what the church should do or not. This morning what I want us to do is I want to look in Ephesians chapter 2. And I want to look at a couple words, a couple images, phrases, analogies uh, that show up inside of this book that describe what the church is, and hopefully they're reminders to you, reminders to me of who we are as the church and what God's plan is for his church. So if you've got your Bibles, you can flip to Ephesians chapter 2. Flip to Ephesians chapter 2, and as you're turning there, uh, fair warning, I've gotten a little bit of an extended introduction, so you've got plenty of time to find it. Ephesians chapter 2 will begin in verse 19. But as we're talking about this, we're always talking about it at a certain cultural moment. You're always talking about it at a certain context in which you live, right? If we were talking about this 300 years ago in mainland China, we'd be talking about some of the dynamics the scripture brings up, the facets that God shows us who the church is in different ways. But we're talking about it in 21st century, and not just 21st century, but the Western world, and not just the Western world, but here on the North Shore. And so uh, there's, there's things that I want to go ahead and say uh, that to raise that to, as we're thinking about this that give context for how we want to view the church. Now, I'm going to be borrowing from other observations from some sociologists that have done a lot of hard work thinking about religion, the role of religion, the role of American society, and where we are today. So there's a couple words that stick out that describe, this is the world that you live in, okay? This is the world that we inhabit as people today. And so it's important. Sometimes when you're in the world, right, the old analogy of the fish, the fish doesn't know it's wet until it's flopped out on the sand. And when it's flopping around in the sand, it realizes, oh, I need water because that's what I live in all the time. So we need to recognize the water that we live in. What's, what is it that we swim in? And so Charles Taylor, this Canadian thinker and philosopher, he says that you live, I live, we live as a result of years and years and years of thinking and movement and societal changes. Some of those have pushed us to be uh, in a capitalistic society right on our side of the world, which means we're largely consumer driven, which also means uh, we're largely individualistic. Okay, so there's these great big words that he uses to get to where uh, you and I are today. I want to give you a couple examples to make it more practical. So uh, he does some sort of before and after the war, talks about the nature of, of wealth and how wealth has changed it. Here's two phrases he says. One he says is that material prosperity individualizes us. Material prosperity individualizes us. In other words, wealth, wealth 
creates private spaces. Wealth creates private spaces in private lives. So, an example, prior to World War II, most people would go to something called a laundromat to do their laundry, right? That's where they would go. It's a communal space. They meet friends. They see people in the neighborhood. There's relationships that are naturally built as the warp and woof of their lives. Well, after more wealth has been created in the United States, people can do something and they could purchase their own washing machine and put it inside of their house. And now they're doing their washing and drying inside of their house, which just means that they're not running into, bumping into people in their community as naturally, as one example. Secondly, if you study uh, the way that home designs are built, right? At the end of the 1800s, what happens here is that there's a big market for front porches. And people want to build a front porch and they want to make their front porch inviting and attractive. They want to make it a place where they can run into those inside of their community because everyone else is on their front porch that's there. So you can go downtown Chicago and see and guess when homes are built by how big their front porches are. You could, I mean, there's not always accurate, but you could go and do that. And what happens around the 1930s and 1940s is that home design flips and now people aren't building front porches anymore. They're investing in the back of their house, right? One of the reasons for that is there's a little invention called the television that shows up in the 30s and 40s. And you take this little box with pixelated black and white things and there's a news anchor talking about stuff all around the world. And the families don't want to sit on the front porch. They want to be inside of their homes and they want to be listening to this news that's going on, right? And so it just naturally changes the way that we live. I've been thinking about this for the last couple weeks, how it is that we live in this sort of individualized uh, society. I went to my kid's soccer game. And this hasn't been long since I was the little kid playing soccer and my parents were showing up at my game. And I get to the game and I realize, one, there's like 20 fields around there. But I looked around and at my daughter's field and at the fields around, there were no bleachers, right? When we were kids and you showed up to the soccer game, on the side of the soccer field, there were bleachers. And what happened there is you sat next to somebody you didn't know and you're screaming for your kid and you're elbowing some of the other, right? You get to know somebody, you're getting a fight with somebody on the other team. Something happens as there's a nature of being in this communal space. Why? Because everyone didn't want to buy a chair and bring it to the game. But today, the expectation is you get to customize your own soft chair that you pull out that's there that has a cup holder or a koozie or whatever it is that you want to be a part of your chair. You can do that, right? You can live this interesting individual, individualistic life, even in something as small as a soccer game. Another place I saw it, um, since college football is starting and football is starting right now, which I'm a huge fan of, some of you are probably in fantasy leagues, right? And for you, the entire, for your entire life, when you've cheered for a team, you've cheered for a team with other people, right? So Bears fans, right? We are Bears fans together. We're turning the tube on and we're cheering for Bears fans. When we see a Bears fan, right, we give a high five to somebody that's there. We salute them. We associate with them. It just creates this sort of natural community that's there. But in fantasy football, what's interesting is, even though I might be a Bears fan, if I draft a player that's on Green Bay, right, or if I draft a player that's on the Cowboys or or a team that I may not like as much, all of a sudden I find myself cheering for that team. And I've created a team that no one else has the same team as me. So I'm the only one in my life that's cheering for these individual players that are on these different teams, right? It's just, it's an interesting observation that shows up inside of our society. And I think what what I'm trying to do, and the reason I'm spending time doing this is because what happens is we begin to receive these messages inside of, as we live in this world, is that you can live your own life by yourself. You can live sort of a solo, fulfilled life self-autonomous life. But if you want to follow Jesus, that's actually not an option. 
You, you might be able to live your life by yourself in your career and make the money that you want. You might be able to get your 401k where you want. You might be able uh, to achieve the educational level that you want to achieve. You might be able to beat some addictions on your own. You might be able to solve relational problems on your own. But you can't follow Jesus by yourself. Because when you begin to follow Jesus, Jesus always takes you to other people. Jesus is always moving us from individual lives into communal spaces. And I think as we look at these pictures here this morning of how the Apostle Paul describes the church, we're going to see that in each instance it's pulling us out of the current in which our culture is moving us. So, extended introduction completed. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. I want to read four verses uh, for us. And they are on the screen. I take that back. Extended introduction, not done. Here's my summary. I forgot to read it. We find ourselves with more possessions and fewer relationships. We find ourselves with more information, but less character formation. We find ourselves with more experiences, but they are less meaningful. We're less content. Studies show this. And in each case, when we see one of these, we're going to see how the church comes alongside one of those realities. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Here it is. On the screen, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. There's three images that show up here that are describing who the church is. The first one there is, says that they are citizens. So in God's new society, we're citizens. Secondly, it says that we are members of God's household. So it talks about the house or the family. And then the last one there is that we are part of the temple that God is building. We are materials, if you will, within the temple that God is building. So first, that we are citizens in God's new society. This letter was written to the church of Ephesus, which means that Ephesus was one of the major cities inside of the Roman world in that first century there. And so citizenship would have been a big deal to anyone in the Roman world, right? You are protected or not protected based on your citizenship. If you're an alien or stranger inside of the society, you may or may not get treated justly, right? But if you're a Roman citizen, you're guaranteed that you're going to be protected. You're going to have some legal status. You're going to have some rights and privileges because you are a citizen within the Roman empire. It was a big deal. Paul was a citizen himself, and he claimed this right at different times as he's writing letters and says he wants to be a citizen this there. And then all of a sudden, he, he comes to this, these people, these non-Jewish people, these Gentile people in Ephesus, and he says that you are citizens of God's, house, or, or God's kingdom, right? You are citizens of the society in which God is building. Now, this would have been a debate in the day because there would have been certain people who would have said, no, these Gentiles are outside of the citizenship. They're not in God's society, right? God's society only consists of this certain constituency, right, of these certain Jewish people. And they would have been drawing the lines that are there. But Paul's coming in and saying, no, because of what happens in Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2, which we read together, because of the work of Christ, there's now one man, there's one new society that is created. It's not Jews and Gentiles, it's one. And inside of this citizenship, the, anyone who is there has the, have the rights and the privileges of being a part of God's society. If you think about American uh, society and American history for, for, if you go backwards, right, think about immigration. What does it mean to come to the United States? There's, there's a guess that 40% of us that are alive today 
um, are a result of our great-grandparents or grandparents that came in between the 1880s and the 1920s to the United States, and they came specifically through Ellis Island, right? They would have come, and when they potentially many uh, Europeans, Central, Eastern, Western Europeans, they're getting on ships, they're taking all the possessions they have, potentially getting sick, fighting you know, all the things that happen on that, on that voyage across, and they're landing at Ellis Island, and then they're getting interviewed. And there's, they're going to go through this criteria. There's, do you have the physical health, right? Do you have the medical health to become an American citizen? Because if you didn't, if you showed up and you're sick, they'd send you back home. And then they're asking whether or not you have the mental capacity to be here, to contribute to the United States of America, right? So there's these criteria that are going through, mental, physical, even moral. Are you wanted in another country? Have you committed a crime? Do you have a history in the past in which we do not want someone like you to come and be a part of our society? Those are the types of questions that they're asking there at Ellis Island. And what's interesting is the anxiety that would be produced of somebody that gets on this ship, that's trying to avoid getting sick from somebody else who's on the ship as they cross over, and potentially enter into American citizenship, right? In our day as well, there's tons and tons and tons of anxiety around citizenship and immigration that's happening today. But inside, it's not just American citizenship or citizenship into a country. It's actually citizenship into, the, into God's people as well. People experience a ton of anxiety about associating themselves with the church. Am I good enough to be a part of that society? Do I have the health? Do I have potentially the wealth that they're looking for? Do I have the mental capacity? Do I have the track record? Do I have the moral resume in order to be a part of the church? Because a lot of people feel like they're not qualified and they won't get in. As a church, we remind ourselves why we're qualified to be a part of the church. And we, sometimes we do that through song. There's a hymn writer who says it this way. He sends the invitation out to join God's community and says this. He says, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you. He's full of pity, love, and power. Come ye weary and heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. The invitation to join and be a part of God's people, to be a part, to be citizens of God's kingdom is an invitation to the weak and to the bruised and to the broken and to the weary and to those who don't think they're good enough. God's invitation, his qualifications to come in are to recognize that we are not the kind of people that deserve to be in. We're the kind of people that need to raise our hand and ask for God's forgiveness, to own up to our sin and our brokenness and plead for God's mercy. That's the type of citizenship that we enter into. So the first one is that we're citizens. The second uh, image that Paul uses here is that we are members of God's household. We are members of God's household. One of the interesting studies that's shown up recently when people are looking at church attendance is that people want to belong before they actually believe what the church stands for. They want to be a part of the community before they would, they would actually believe or profess to say that they align themselves with uh, the beliefs or the dogma of a certain church, which in some ways is very odd, right? Uh, in past cases, you want to say, I figured this out, I believe it, and so because I believe it, I am going to associate with this community, right? I'm going to be a part of the club because I already agree with it, right? You think politically, I don't just join the Democrat or Republican Party um, and then figure out what I believe. I align with them because these are convictions that I already have. But what's happening here inside of tr- uh, trends inside of churches right now is that people want to belong to a community before it is they actually believe. Now, again, it may sound odd, but if you think about 
children, right? Think about children that are raised with grandparents or parents that believe in Jesus. Children that are raised inside of of Christian homes. What's the first thing they do? Is the first thing they do recite the Apostles' Creed, right? And come up with with their convictions about the dogma or the teachings in church? No. The first thing they do is they experience love. They experience belonging. It's one of the things that God's family or God's household provides. And we're seeing more and more inside of the church that people are belonging, if you will, not in a sense of membership and going through the formal process, but belonging to a community, receiving care, receiving love from a community. And then in the midst of that, they're beginning to examine and to ask questions and to deal with their doubts and to look at some of the more significant things inside of life. So they are belonging before they believe. And one of the reasons this is important is because every study that you read right now on loneliness, the arrow is going, I guess, up and to the right, right? Loneliness numbers in American society are flying through the roof. Over 50% of Americans say that they are experiencing loneliness. And the majority of those people, interestingly, are not at the top age bracket, which you might think. They're actually the young people. The young people in the United States overwhelmingly are saying that they're experiencing lonely lives where they are not known. Not truly known and not truly loved. These are inside of one of the major studies. These are some of the words. I just, I just clipped a few, but it says they lack companionship. Check. Relationships aren't meaningful. Check. They feel isolated from others. Check. In the midst of this, they're feeling, even though they have, may have a thousand friends on social media device, they feel like they have no friends interpersonally. One of the realities of this is that we live in a much more mobile society. People are packing up and moving all the time, right? They go from one place to another to another, and so they uproot their relationships, and they go and they start over, and, and that can be one of the big challenges. That happened to me. Our family moved a ton when we were growing up. I, I moved at every different major point in life, and for me, moving in the midst of high school was one of the hardest moves that there was. And so we moved. I had all my cool friends in the basketball team and the soccer team, right? I was in the crowd that I wanted to be in at school. And I'm leaving all those people, going to a new place and show up. And, you know, I'm anxious. I'm worried. I'm lonely. And the people that rallied around me, the people that came, literally came to my house and said, welcome to this new, new um, city, were church people. They, they came to us and expressed love to, to me and to my brothers and invited us into a community, showed us a sense of belonging, met us right where we are. The people of God are people who have eyes to see people that need a sense of belonging. And they invite people into the community. We as a church are an invitational church. We live invitational lives, bringing people into our lives because of what Christ has done for us. We invite people into the household of God. We invite people to belong. Now inside of this verse, it doesn't just talk about the household. It gives these two little caveats. It says that the household has a foundation and it has a cornerstone. The foundation are the apostles and the prophets and the cornerstone is Jesus that's there. So I don't have time this morning to get into um, some of the more intricate or delicate uh, interpretations of apostles and prophets. So those of you who like leaving services with homework, you like to go get Mike's notes and read all the footnotes, this is your homework. Go figure out what this means, okay? It's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets or those Old Testament prophets, the New Testament prophets. I'm giving you an assignment. You can go figure out how you want to interpret that, how you, what you think it means, okay? Read Ephesians, the next chapter, chapter 3, verse 5. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It shows up there as well. There's lots of different places you can go. Read Acts chapter 2, verse 42, because it says, as the church gets formed, they meet together. And what do they do? They share bread together, and they focus on the apostles' teaching together. So 
I'm not exactly sure uh, how I should or how we should be interpreting it this morning, but I do know this. The overarching point is that the household is built on the foundation of God revealing his word to his people, of God revealing his word to his people. He gives us scriptures so that we have a foundation to stand on so we don't have to hold our finger up in the air and say which way are the cultural winds blowing right now, but we can look and we can, as we read earlier, we can anchor ourselves in the scriptures once delivered to the saints. So we see this as the foundation, and then we see that there is a cornerstone. Now, archaeological digs will show that there's, there are cornerstones to buildings at this time that show up that are as big as 550 tons, right? There's a stone that anchors the corner of a building that's 550 tons from the first century, right? That's a big rock. It's a big deal. And it, it, it's necessary in order to stabilize and to be a reference point for the building that's built. And the bigger the building, the bigger the cornerstone needs to be. Now, one of the ways that I want you to think about this is that, as I said earlier, there's this tension in this society in Ephesus between the Jewish people and the Gentile people. And they're trying to figure out how these people that have long been separated can be brought together. How is it that we can overcome racial division inside of of this society? How is it that we can over, overcome the nationalism? How is it that we can overcome the caste system, the haves and the have-nots? How is that possible? What could be sturdy enough for us to do that? That's what they're asking. Oh, this household has a cornerstone, a cornerstone that can hold up the western wall and the, and the eastern wall. It can, it can hold up the northern wall and the southern wall. It is strong enough to anchor the entire building around. The entire household can be built around not the pastors of the church, not the church itself, not the creeds of the church. It can stand, the household can stand because the cornerstone is a person, and that person is Jesus the Christ, the eternal Son of God who gave his life for the church. Christ, as we sang earlier, is the cornerstone, not just for the church broadly, but for those that identify with the church individually. He is the one that is the reference point for us. He is the one in which we align our lives. He is the one in which we define ourselves and set the values of our life. So you see that there's citizenship inside of this society God is building. You see that there's a membership or family inside of the household of God. And then lastly, you see here that he uses this language of temple. And, and here, uh, this, is, this is quite interesting, because in Ephesus, uh, and I've had a chance to go, I got to go on one of these study tours, and inside of Ephesus, I mean, from 2,000 years ago, there's still, like, massive building and structures that are in place that exist, and there's columns that are 20 feet high of libraries that are still there. And, and the Temple of Diana would have been a temple that was one of the seven wonders of the world, right? That's there. So when they think temple, they know what this is, right? Temple is the place in which the gods dwell, and you go, to this, you go to the temple in order to receive blessing or in order to give sacrifice or whatever it be to the temple or to the god that you choose. And, and there'd be different temples around. But what, what we're learning, that yes, temple was, some, was a huge part of the Old Testament. We, we understand that. It has significant import as we begin to understand the church. But what you see here is no longer is the temple the place that all of us are supposed to go and make trips to on a regular basis. That's not what the temple is inside of the church. The temple isn't this place that you go, but it's a people that we are. He is saying here in Ephesians chapter 2 at the end that that we are uh, the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus is the cornerstone. The whole building is being fitted together into a holy sanctuary or a holy temple that we as the people of God, those who follow Jesus are one of the stones. You can't build a building with one stone. It takes multiple stones that we are stones inside of the building. First Peter three says we are living stones. 
We are carrying the presence of God with us as the temple wherever it is that we go inside of our worlds, to our workplace, to our families, to the doctor's office, wherever it is we go. We are actually, we are building materials of the presence of God in this world. Think about any good builder, right? You're going to build a building that is good enough for whoever it is, right? For some, somebody that's really important, you're going to build their home. And are you going to go down to the scrapyard and go get whatever materials that are laying around, right? And just sort of board up leftover wood that's there, bent boards, uh, low-end, low-cost materials. No, you're going to go buy the best of the best of the best. That's what you're going to do if you're going to build a home. That's what you're going to do if you want something to last for a long time. You're going to have these materials. But guess when God is building his temple, he's choosing people like you. He's choosing people like me to be a part of the temple. Not the smartest chip on the block, right? Not the people with the best moral record. He's picking some of these materials that everyone else is going to discard. Everyone else is going to leave beside. But in God's providence and his goodness and his graciousness, he sees us in the midst of our rebellion and our brokenness. And he says, come be a part of what I'm building. And come represent me and be my presence inside of the world. God is good. And he is gracious to let us be a part of what it is that he's doing. Well, as we close out the service uh, today, you see that we have um, the communion elements that are set up here inside. And one of the things inside of the temple and the imagery of the temple is that you regularly have these rituals that would have happened inside the Old Testament temple. And then when God built and designed the temple and he brings priests to do certain things once a year, come into the mercy seat and they would make sure that they, the priests would have blood with them so that they would, they would cleanse themselves by offering a sacrifice or giving uh, to God. And they'd, they'd always not just represent themselves, but to represent all of Israel. And they would be there. And, and there are these rituals that happen. There's lots of different rituals that are there. We won't go into those this morning. But one of which didn't happen inside the temple. It happened inside of families is the ritual of Passover. And that, that God created this meal that he wanted his people to remember who they were and specifically who they were when they were inside of slavery. And so he gives them this meal. And they, they have to they go read Exodus chapter 12. It's a great little explanation of what this is. And, and one of the things that's in there that's always my favorite part when I am reading through there is that what happens is they wear their sandals, which they wouldn't normally do at a meal, and they're carrying their staff, and they're eating these bitter herbs as a part of that. And it says, your children are going to ask you why in the world it is you're doing this, right? If you've got kids in the service today, when my kids first saw this, they're like, Dad, why are you drinking blood? <laughs> Why are you eating the body of Jesus, right? Why are you doing that? That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, right? And these kids would have been asking the same thing. Why are we eating these bitter herbs? Oh, because you were once in slavery. Don't forget about the bitter life that you used to live. Why are we eating this meal in this way? Oh, we're eating with our sandals because we're going to leave out of the night quickly. He's, he's reminding them of the story of salvation, that life in which they were saved from and the life in which they were saved to. So Israel did this year after year after year after year after year to form the people into the identity of God's story of resurrection, God's story of salvation. This morning, what we're about to do is the same thing. It's this reminder that we were once those that had the guilt of our sins on our own shoulders. That we were those that would stand before God with no representative. We were those that would stand before God and all we have to do is say, this was my best effort. But now we stand before God as someone who says, I am covered in the blood of Jesus, who has already experienced death, who has already experienced wrath, who has already experienced the punishment in which I deserve. I am claiming his life and his death for mine. 
It's a meal that reminds us who we were, and it, it's a, a meal that reminds us that Jesus took our place, and it's a meal that reminds us that Jesus is coming back. Because at the end of the meal, he says, next time you eat this, you'll eat this with me in paradise. You'll eat this again one day when I return to this world. So when we take this meal, it reminds us, right, the little girl, picture it in your head, right? Don't forget. Don't forget in your life as you leave. Your identity is wrapped up in Christ. If you're a follower of Christ, if not, you're invited into his family. You're invited into his society. No matter who and where you are today, bring your sins before God and beg for his mercy. He is a God who, when you show up, you don't show up with anxiety. You show up with assurance. That's what it is that our Christ provides. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are, as the hymn writer described, we are those who are poor and needy. We're weak and wounded. We're sick and sore. We're full of things that we wish weren't true. But yet you and your graciousness and mercy have seen us, you have met us, and you have given us the goodness and richness of the gospel. You've given us the promise of life. You've given us even a family to belong to here in this world in the midst of loneliness. You've given us assurance where anxiety is present. You've given us a sense of purpose to be a part of the church, to be a part of the temple in this world. Thank you for providing us with each one of these things. This morning, as we come to the communion table, God, we pray that it would be um, something that is meaningful and uh, would break through our forgetfulness. We know that we can't do this without your spirit. So we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.